Hi, Michelle Sparks with you, Illumination Anorexia, Eating, Self and Body Issues. Great to have your company. My guest today is Professor Ian Hickey, AM, Order of Australia. And he is the co-lead investigator with Australian Genetics of Depression Study. He's also the co-director for Health and Policy, Brain and Mind Centre, University of Sydney. He's an internationally renowned researcher in clinical psychiatry and a leading voice on mental health issues with a special interest in youth mental health and the prevention of and early intervention in emerging mood disorders. Professor Ian Hickey, it is such a pleasure and a privilege to have a moment to speak with you this afternoon. Thank you. Well, thanks so much for the opportunity. We might just start by asking you about the Australian Genetics of Depression study. Can you tell us a little bit about that? This is such an important study for those who live with the experience of clinical depression. And that's about one in seven Australians who in their lifetime will have an episode of depression that's so severe that it really impairs their life or puts them at risk through uh, self-harm or suicidal thoughts and behaviours. At the moment, if you come forward to get treated for depression, we unfortunately are not able to say with any precision which type of treatment will be most likely to help you and also have the minimum number of side effects. So what we've been doing in this study is actually collecting data. We've collected data already from 13,000 Australians, which already tells us the answers to two big questions. Often in the media, people say, do antidepressants work? Or often worse, they say they don't work. Well, the truth is that the 13,000 people who've been uh, telling us about their experiences of being treated with antidepressants, actually 75% of them say, actually, the medicines and other treatments do work. They relieve yeah. key symptoms. They actually make me feel less suicidal. They make me more feel like I can work and I can think and I can cope. The downside, however, is about 50% of people say, you know, there are significant side effects and they're so significant in a lot of situations that I've had to quit the drug, start another drug, take some combination of medicines and even if I'm getting a benefit, still have to live with a lot of unwanted side effects. Yeah. So there's the good news. Yes, antidepressants work. And there's the bad news for a lot of people. They don't get there to an effective treatment that they can live with first time around. Often there's a lot of trial and error, a lot of guesswork before they get to a treatment that works. And, that, and if you think about it, that's pretty risky. If you come yes. along and you finally come along for care and you're suicidal and your life's falling apart and, you know, the first time around only about one in three people gets a treatment that really works, two out of three people don't and they have to go through another cycle of treatment, of approaches. They may be waiting weeks or months to get to an effective uh, treatment. That's just yes. really not good enough. Yes, and, and if some of those um, side effects could be a heightening of anxiety or whatever, that, as you said, that could be really, really difficult. So can I ask you, with, the, with what you're studying, what are you hoping to um, find that's going to benefit people in this regard? Well, the most immediate thing first is this prescribing problem. You know, if you finally come forward for treatment of depression, and you, need, and you need medicines, for example, as the doctor picks up the pen in his right hand or her right hand to write a script, you hope they'd be sitting there within their left hand with some information from like a blood test, a genetic test that says this person has an 80% chance of responding well to this drug and only a 20% chance of having significant side effects, where at the moment it's pretty much 50-50. It's pretty much random chance. We don't really know when we start right. a particular drug. Right, so, so it's going to actually really help empowered, Yeah. Yeah, right. tailor, to personalise, to be precise. These are all the buzzwords of the day. This is what's going on in cancer and infectious diseases and other areas of medicines. Get the genetics right. Make it much more likely that you predict the right treatment or choose the right treatment 
first time around, not Fantastic. second, third, or fourth time around. So this, you know, is tremendously important, Michelle, to get this right first Absolutely. time. Yes. Then people can have some confidence. See, in Australia, we're more mentally aware than anyone else on earth. We have more awareness in Australia, but people don't have confidence that if they get treatment, it's actually going to work or that right. it might not be very complicated. In a sense, they're right. Right at the moment, we don't have the precision that we have in other areas of physical health care to really get this right. And that's what we need. It sounds fantastic. I mean, that's going to be such a help to so many people, as you said, who are suffering not only with depression. I know you've got an interest in depression and emerging mood disorders. Uh, the audience that I'm speaking to here, we're speaking to, is um, really targets uh, eating disorders, eating health, self, body issues. So depression and anxiety are very relevant to us. And I'd love it if you could perhaps speak to us a little bit about the link between um, anxiety and depression and then perhaps also the link between anxiety and depression and eating disorders, which, you know, statistically we know are all together in a bit of a melting pot. So would you like to speak to that? Yeah, that's a fascinating question, actually, Michelle. If you look at the onset of a lot of eating disorders, particularly in early adolescence and particularly in young women in that age group, that's the same age as the onset of a lot of anxiety and depression and mood-related yes. problems. So a very common clinical phenomena that we see is that, you know, young women in particular started having both mood and anxiety problems, but also eating problems. The more and more they get engaged with the eating problems, often that becomes more and more of a preoccupation. Yes. And certainly if they lose a lot of body weight, people often notice that the mood problems seem to be less severe. But the eating disorder is then really severe and really problematic. And often when you get involved in refeeding, people start to gain weight again. Guess what? The anxiety yes. and depression re-emerges. And yes. everyone goes, well, not everyone, the person, particularly the young woman with the experience goes, well, that's horrible. I'm going back to not eating. Because when yes. I wasn't eating, when I wasn't eating, I was more in control. Yes. I could keep my mood and my anxiety and everything else under control through not eating, through this focus on my eating behavior. So the re-emergence of mood and mood-related problems is one of the major predictors of relapse in yes. the anorexia nervosa and eating disorder uh, area. So there are very tight links in these situations. Now it may well be that some of the genetics here for these sort of things is shared, is the same. There are certain kinds of depressive disorders where abnormal eating behaviour and depressed mood run hand in glove. And how you manage that is exactly the sort of thing where better understanding the genetics, better understanding what's really going on is potentially a way forward. So you know, I think for those who are working particularly at the clinical end of these conditions and those who've looked at relapsing and, you know, persisting problems, being able to manage the mood-related difficulties alongside the difficult disordered eating is as important as one is as important as the other if you really want to get a long-term functional recovery. Yeah, look, that is just such a fantastic point. So if I can kind of summarise, and correct me if I'm, I've got it wrong, but um, often the mood disorder, the anxiety, the depression may precede the eating disorder. The eating disorder then controls that to a degree, the sense of that. And then when, as the eating <laughs> disorders, you start to recover from that, you come face-to-face -face back with the underlying anxiety and different um, factors that exactly. were preceding the eating disorder. And so good treatment of mood and underlying 
um, disordered eating and pathology is, is obviously going to really help someone who's struggling in this space to recover a life worth living. Exactly. So in the longer term, many people would say in the longer term, unless you successfully manage both, you won't get a good long-term outcome. Yes. You know, so, and you can see this can go wrong either way. Sometimes all the focus is just on the eating behavior and there's no attending to the anxiety, mood and underlying emotional distress. Other yes. times it's all about the emotional distress without actually controlling the eating behavior, which is putting yes. a young person's life at risk. So really, in many of these situations, you've got to have effective management of both. And, yes. and often the sequence by which they emerge and then they change. And, and the nature of anxiety and mood disorder problems often do change over the course of adolescence and then early adult life. So, you know, really much deeper understandings of the relationship between these different sets of behaviours, symptoms and emotions may be critical to getting better long-term results. That's fantastic. What a fantastic summary. Thank you. That's really very helpful. Can I ask you too, I know that um, you obviously have an interest in the interplay between genetic and environmental factors in depression and mental illness. Can you speak to us about that interplay of genetic and environmental factors? Yeah, so we know at the population level, meaning in general, from twin studies, family studies, everything else, that about a third of the causes of anxiety and depression are genetic. And about two-thirds are things that happen in the environment, whether they're childhood environments or your current social situation. There are things that are out there in the world that are having negative, adverse effects. Now, that's in general. In any individual family and then in an individual, that combination of genetics and environments may vary. So in some families, it may be much more strongly genetic. In other situations, much more strongly environmental. But in most situations, it's going to be a mix of the two. It's going to be something about what you've inherited, just like your eye color and your hair color and your height and everything else. We have certain characteristics that are built in. So for some people facing the same environmental challenges, they're more likely to develop depression than others. Yes. On the environmental side, we need to do everything we can to reduce environmental risks, whether they are things like we see a lot of focus at the moment on childhood sexual abuse in our wider community, things that are really adverse we've got to certainly reduce, things related to alcohol and drug use, certain other kind of chronic stresses, some of the certain other sort of family difficulties or other problems that people have faced in development, other traumatic events. You know, there are things that are going on in the environment that are relevant. We need to try and attend to those. There are things that we each inherit, however that put us at risk. Sometimes we know that, but quite often people don't know. You won't know until you're in that situation whether you actually are at risk. Um, Although the more we know about our families and the more we know about what runs in our families, the more likely we are to be able to understand those risks. Yes, fantastic. And I'm not sure who said this, but there's a saying, you, you probably know who said it, that genes load the gun, but environment pulls the trigger. And you're just speaking a little bit to that right now. And I'm wondering if you can, can comment or talk to us about some of the protective factors that, you know, in terms of environment, can you were mentioning a few um, alcohol and substance abuse and, you know, environments that um, uh, bring safety, I suppose, and protection to young lives so that they don't feel anxious about perhaps um, uh, sexual um, harm or just safety in general. Can you speak to some of the other just the protective factors that can really promote better mental health across the board. So the most important protective factors are actually social and social connection. The more connected you are with families, friends, people you're intimate with, 
the more people you have in your life that you have meaningful, real connection with, that's yes. the most protective thing that's out there. Now, that's yes. kind of interesting because actually relationships are also the most threatening thing that's out there. When they go wrong, yes. they're a big problem. When they go yes. right, they're the best antidepressant available. So the quality of one's relationships is a big issue. It's the big yes. numero uno in most people's lives. Now, at the, indiv- at the individual level, there are other things like staying physically fit, staying physically active, managing your sleep-wake cycle, reducing alcohol and other drug use, there are a whole range of other things which are additionally important. And, you know, if you are at risk, you need to think about in particular ways. And we would say in each of those, you need to think about personally what works. I mean, for some people, exercise works really well. For some people, regularizing their sleep-wake cycle works really well. For others, certain kinds of psychological strategies, learning how to relax, using things like yoga, using other particular strategies works really well. Now, they don't work equally well for all of us. There's a tendency to say to people, oh, look, go and do all these things, mindfulness, yoga, exercise, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, as if they're all equally likely to help you. It's not true. You've got to find the ones, you've got to find the one that works for you, you know, um, Certain kinds of meditation, relaxation don't suit a lot of people. A lot of people prefer to be physically active to relax. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful point. It's just as, you know, it's wonderful because it is really about the uniqueness of the individual and actually finding what does work well for you. So that's a really helpful point. Yeah. Yeah. So um, finding what works to help you cope every day yourself what really works for you different sleep wake cycles people are some people are real morning people some people are real evening people some people are chaotic day to days others have very regular kind of cycles that's not the problem so better understanding yourself and what works that's really important what sort of person are you what sorts of coping strategies are helpful and what not having said that for all of us humans are social animals so at least for 95 percent of us staying connected to those people who are around us I'll help you in a crisis, you help me in a crisis, and I know that you would, and you know that I would do the same for you. That is critical. So, you know, that's one thing I'd say across the board for humans, and we underrate. We talk a lot about what's in our own head, but are we any good with the person next to us and the person we live with is probably a more important question, you know. I really love that. Is he, she there for me? Am I there for them? You know, because when you're in trouble, the reason I say that also is when you're in trouble, it's not that easy to do things yourself. You know, if you say to people, oh, look, when you're in trouble, you should get help. When you're in trouble, the well, hardest thing in the world to do is get help. You know? Exactly. You know, when you're in trouble, you need the person who cares about you to say, hey, 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 let's go get help together. You know, yes. something's not right. I don't know what to do, but let's go find out. You know, let's go and actually uh, get the best care, get the best information, and I'll be there to support you while we work our way through the complicated medical and psychological systems. You know, that's what really matters in these particular areas. That's what we've really got to get straight. Um, I, I think, sorry, The yes, social support I, aspect. Yeah, critical. I think you're so, I mean, spot on because that sense of connection and support, so not, I'm wondering on that note, do you, do you see an increase in these problems and do you see any connection with, you know, in many ways we're more connected but we're less connected. We're very connected digitally and electronically but that human element can be um, perhaps you know, eroded in the busyness and the pace of life and the demands that um, ensue. Any comment about that? 
Well, that's a really interesting question, Michelle. See, over the last 50 years, people's connection with their local communities has declined. You know, going to church on Sunday, being part of the local community group, part of the local sporting group, part of the local anything has declined. We've all got busier and disconnected and more stuck in our own families and less less sharing the world with people around us. Now, that long precedes the last five to ten years of the explosion of personal technologies. A lot of people go, oh, this is all due to technology. You go, hang on, hang on, hang on. You know, Facebook was only invented yeah. a decade ago. And it's only right. been a social explosion in the last five years. It's been going on for the last 50 years. So right. there is a problem with decreasing social connection over the last 50 years. So I do think there's an issue with disconnection not caused by modern technology. In fact, the modern technology in young people is in part a response to that. Actually, yeah. young people connecting themselves up again. And most young people do use technology largely to stay connected. Yes. So connection is important and we need to look at ways of doing that. I personally think technology is one of the roads open to us to reconnection if used well. Yes, yes. I think that's a key factor, isn't it? How to use it in terms of personal face-to-face connection and the online space to um, harness that connection as well. Yeah, so thinking about connection, thinking about how in your world you connect. Now, People also live different worlds. I mean, we now have a situation, you know, most couples, most families where people are working. The workplace has become an incredibly important place for social connection, not just for work. You know, so many of us live our lives socially much more within the work environment than we did in the past rather than the sort of work versus life outside of work. I mean, they have become merged for most people. So thinking about the quality of relationships at work as well as at home or in your community, valuing connections and across generations within your communities re-establishing the value of connections when they're not formally organized by churches by community groups by sporting clubs so you know taking the time and effort when it's not so easy it's not so regulated you can't just simply turn up you know on a Saturday or a Sunday or on a Wednesday night and just find the same sort of social groups as you once could Yes. Is a, is a big challenge. And certainly for young people, that's an issue. So I think there is an issue we see particularly affecting young people. You particularly, you need connections at all stages of your life, but you particularly need rich connections when you're young. You, yes. you need to see different role models. You need to see how different people cope. You need to have the opportunity to learn from many different people. So, you know, these are big issues for us. How do we do it well? in the modern era and we're all involved in this big social experiment together we've got to sort out how do we do it well in the modern world so the social connection aspect critical probably the adverse effects of not doing it well have mainly played out in young people so they're the people who are being most affected and we certainly see some worrying trends in uh, self-harm and suicidal behavior particularly amongst young women at the moment which suggests loss of connection but also additional pressures and some of those may be associated with the new technologies but certainly on a sense of uh, success rather than of we're all imperfect but how do we best cope together not just on our own but together you know I think that's really really um, one of the most important sets of issues how do we all cope together wow so many amazing things that you shared in just this brief time, awareness, self-awareness, the power of connection, really becoming aware of of that in our own lives. If if there's a young person, I know that um, you are looking for volunteers for the study, so I'll 
touch base with you on that in just a moment. But I'm just thinking if there is some young people listening to this interview today, I mean, I think you've probably already said it, especially about the connection, but if they are struggling um, in their, you know, with anxiety, depression, what would be perhaps something you'd just like to say to that person today who finds themselves in a situation where they're struggling? Do you have any... It's not your, it's not your fault. You know, yeah. it's not your fault. These are the complex interplays between environmental factors over which people often have little control and their own genetics. You know, asthma's not your fault. Diabetes isn't usually your fault. Heart disease, if you're a man of my age, is not your fault. These are the inherited factors. We all hold a liability to illness interacting with the environment's lives we live. Yeah. And there is help. You know, there is yeah. help. Yes, help absolutely. does help. Medical treatment helps. Psychological treatment helps. Social help helps. Don't yeah. do it on your own. Don't go, I can do this on my own. That's how you get lost. That's how you get in risk. You know, I can't treat my heart attack on my own. I can't really treat my asthma on my own. What makes me think I can treat my depression on my own? Absolutely. That's just a risky. That's just a risky thing to do. Yeah. So, to those people who are in the situation, you know, we've got to move beyond awareness. We all know about it to actually helping each other get through each of these particular issues that yes. we face because we're all likely at different stages of our life to face different challenges. Absolutely. And, you know, yeah. I might need your help today. You might need my help tomorrow. You know, we don't know what yeah. actually comes next in many of these situations. So, you know, this, the support and the knowledge that, you know, depression now is like diabetes in the past it's like asthma in the past it's like cancer in the past things we didn't understand and we feared we can now get better help we can now respond in a more appropriate and positive way yeah and while we're doing that we've got to make things better so yeah. this larger genetic study we're involved in everyone's contributing to and i mean it's fabulous in australia the number of people who've been prepared to volunteer we've got about 13,000 we need about 20 to 25,000 to really crack this nut and make a big difference we need people to volunteer we've got experiences come online very detailed questionnaires tell us all about it we'll send you back the spit kits where we collect saliva in order to make sure that we can match the genetics with the experiences and large enough numbers hopefully be in a situation where if you do come forward in the future we'll be able to say hey Take this treatment, 80% chance you'll get better, only 20% chance you'll have significant side effects. Or, even better, 90% chance you'll get better, 10% chance you get significant side effects, depending on how the genetics plays, plays out. That is fantastic. So if anyone's listening, they can go to it's www.geneticsofdepression.org.au. That's right. That's for the Australians that are listening. And if they're overseas, that, that this study is just for Australians. Is that correct? Well... The spit bit is, but you can actually, for overseas, you can actually go online. I mean, the great, what I love about online is online doesn't know where the borders are. Online is everywhere. You know, yeah. getting information from everyone. Um, if you're afraid, if you're a very long way away, we'll have trouble actually sending you the spit kit. But actually, your experiences, <laughs> your experiences are still important. I mean, mainly we'd love to get 20 to 25,000 Australians because we're able to get the genetic data and other things. And also Australians are telling us about the problems we've got with our own health system. We may be the most aware people on earth. We haven't yet got health systems running in a way that makes them the best on earth. We yes. have some way to go. We've got great cancer care. We've got great emergency care. We've got some way to go to making sure we have great mental health care in Australia. 
Absolutely. Professor Ian Hickey, thank you so much for your time, all your wonderful uh, experience and uh, knowledge in this area that you've shared with us today. Thank you so much and all the best with the study and we look forward to seeing what emerges. So thank you. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Okay. Such a great interview with Professor Ian Hickey. I will put the link to that study on my webpage and so go to the link michellesparks.com and I'll also put a brief synopsis of um, some of the wonderful points that Professor Ian Hickey shared with us. Uh, great interview, great man doing a great work. So hope you enjoyed that and look forward to your company next episode. Michelle Sparks signing off and travel well. Mm -hmm.